folks, I'm Layman Pascal, and welcome back to Escaping the Educational Ruts, part 17 of our 293-part episode series of Asking Game B Pioneer, Network Warrior, and Quasi-Philosopher Jim Rutt to speculate wildly about the educational crisis and the opportunities it may afford us. Now, I'm being half facetious, of course, but I do think education is one of the major choke points and or leverage points as humanity faces its multiple overlapping and accumulating crises. And who better to probe that territory with than a guy, a uh, smart, exuberant fellow who makes the concept of an old coot look good. It's Jim Rutt. Hi, Jim. Hey, Layman. It's great for this old coot to be back on uh, on your podcast. It's always fun. You always ask good questions, always energizing, uh, and sure as, sure as shit, education is a really critical topic, right? One we've uh, talked about a fair bit on my podcast, The Jim Rutt Show, by the way. Uh, a little shameless pluggery there. Uh, and, you know, when we think about, you know, what what really you know it helps to step back and think what is education actually in a good sense right of course it can be in a whole bunch of bad senses like you know let's uh, program people to be able to work efficiently on the assembly line for instance right which was kind of uh, you know some of the first public high schools in the uh, late 19th early 20th century that was their motivation but we think about it more broadly and I will, I will confess that I have been very strongly influenced by a fellow named Zach Stein. Uh, and he's got a wonderful book called Education in a Time Between Worlds, I think it's called. And uh, so some of this is rehashed Stein, uh, and some of it is uh, my own musings and ideas from other folks. Uh, but I think the essence, and this is one of the points that Zach does make, uh, the essence of education is it is the necessary mechanism for intergenerational transfer of knowledge, culture, and everything, basically. And that's the important thing to consider is that education truly considered, broadly considered, is by its nature very broad. It's, you know, not just facts and techniques, you know, oh yeah, the uh, pilgrims landed in Massachusetts in 1620 and uh, techniques, ah, here's how you do long division. Uh, but also, you know, how do you deal with other people? Uh, what are the virtues that are important in, in your society? Uh, you know, how do you learn to be a uh, to play in a multiplayer game, which is society, right? It's not a not a single player game. It's not network wars. Uh, it's uh, it's a multiplayer game, and uh, things like emotional intelligence and much more. And uh, you know, a narrow focus on facts and techniques uh, is not truly the kind of education we need for the world uh, the world we're confronting. That is a great sort of general slice of, I think, what a lot of the problems are in this in the system we've got set up right now. And one of the things that's in there, or one of the implications of what you were just saying, is sort of the question, what do we want? Like, we can imagine an ongoing educational process, um, but we also have these sort of finite educational processes that we inflict upon or offer to the children. What's the goal? Like what you were saying, a person who's able to play multiple games or multipolar games. Right. What else do we know or what else do we hope about what the educational system produces? What do we want out the other end when we put somebody in for 12 or 16 or 20 years? What are we hoping to get if not um, a factory worker? <laughs> yeah. yeah the, well, first, I would challenge that we really need to grind away for, you know, zillion hours a day for 20 years. Right? A lot of research indicates 
uh, that that's actually not anywhere near optimal. It's a very interesting research paper. Unfortunately, I couldn't find it this morning. I'll see if I can find it before I, you, I publish and put it up on your show notes. But by chance, there was a found experiment where uh, a group of uh, kids were not given any math education until they were 13 or 14. Uh, and then they were put into uh, middle school math. And within a year, they caught up. Uh, and consider how much time is spent in the sausage factory grinding away on math when people are six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It may turn out to be a complete waste of time. Uh, in that it, you know, the facts and techniques necessary to know middle school non-algebraic math uh, may may be able to be taught in you know a year when you're 14. Uh, and so I, it seems to me that uh, you know we want to. Uh, think optimally about how we bring in these things for an intergenerational transfer. But to your bigger question of what we want a person to be, at the, you know, in some sense, uh, I go all the way back to Aristotle, right? I want them to be a good citizen, uh, whatever that means, right? And it means a lot of things. Uh, it means having facts and techniques, uh, but it also means, uh, you know, and oh, I, should, I should say, and then it also uh, very much in the Aristotelian model includes virtues, right? And uh, some of that is, you know, how to be on an assembly line uh, and be a worker, be reliable, be conscientious, be accurate, be truthful, etc. Uh, but a, a lot of the other things are, uh, you know, how to respect other people, you know, how to be able to defuse uh, conflict in life. I mean, there, there will always be conflict in life. And rather than going on throwing a tantrum and, oh, God, have it my way, you know, learning to be able to think through from the other person's perspective and to engage in uh, you know, what, what I recommend is rule omega, which is to assume the other person is trying to make sense, uh, unless you're, you know, fundamentally uh, have very strong evidence that they're not. Uh, and so th these kinds of cognitive, social, interpersonal uh, techniques, so I, can, I go back to the wideness of it as, as really what we're trying to accomplish. Good citizen, broadly construed. Right. Good citizenship. You know, you and I have talked before about the kinds of projects and genres of economic and cultural activity in which game B type people might naturally outperform conventional approaches. Uh, it seems to me education might be one of those areas because, you know, there's a sense of how minds work. There's a sense of collaboration. There's a sense of uh, critique of systems. Uh, does it seem to you like education is one of the areas where game B thinking might have an edge? Uh, we think so. And we're as, as we're starting to move to actually plan and even in some cases build proto-B on the ground communities, uh, how we're going to deal with education is something that's you know, right front and center in our design stack. And uh, in our thinking is that we ought to be able to do a way better job. Now, of course, we run into a problem of resourcing, the, especially in the United States. Uh, most of the money goes into uh, the sausage factory public school system. There are some side alternatives of charter schools and such, uh, but uh, uh, and so that makes it appealing to see if you can use the charter schools, but they're actually very fairly rigid. It may well be that we'll just jump out and say, all right, we'll take on the full co uh, cost in our community of doing true game B education. Uh, and you know, we suspect that there is huge rooms uh, for improvement in many ways, uh, you know, not just getting the skills and virtues, but also the mental health. You know, it's one of the things you look, look at the trajectory over my lifetime on the advantages of being an old coot, so-called, uh, is that you know, I've seen a fair amount of uh, change since I was a lad back in the late 50s and early 60s when I was in uh, elementary school. 
And uh, in, in those days, you know, we actually had a fair amount of free play at school, so-called recess. In fact, I have said it publicly that uh, with respect to my business career, I learned more at recess than I did in the classroom, uh, probably at least uh, up till grade six, right? You know, I learned, uh, you know, I learned how to lead. I learned how to follow. I learned how to organize. I learned how to attack organizations, coalition politics. I mean, constant battles on the playground in those days. In those days, they let you fight, which was good, right? Now, the goddamn mamby-pamby teachers won't let kids fight. I mean, uh, you know, a 10-year-old boy, that's what, they're, that's what they were evolutionary designed to do is spar with other 10-year-old boys, right? And uh, if you can't do that, you're not developing uh, as a, 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 a full person. Uh, so I think that there has been you know, I don't think the sausage factory was all that good when I, in 1963, when I would have been in fourth grade. Uh, but uh, I think it's gotten a lot worse since, right? The, uh, everything I hear from uh, schools today is that there's less free time uh, for true free play. And uh, to the degree there is free play, it's very highly supervised, you know, uh, no kid gangs, right? No this, no that, no throwing rocks at hornet's nests, you know, all the things that you did and you learn, don't get too close to a hornet's nest, you can throw a rock at it. That's a useful, that's a useful learning and applies not just to uh, throwing rocks at hornet's nests, but in, in dealing with business and government, and the police and everything else, right? So, uh, so I think those are, those are some very important things. And then also I think this idea of education being very broad. The idea of unstructured play outside of school is even more important. And, you know, I will say I learned uh, way more from the vast number of hours spent in unstructured play as a kid outside of school than I did even in recess in school. So um, I think it's very important to think of education holistically in that sense. And, I, and, and if we're designing a game B education environment, it's going to... Uh, thoughtfully consider all those things, you know, how much uh, formal schooling, how many, how much time spent on, uh, you know, facts and techniques versus how much time spent on play. And the other uh, area, I'm a strong believer, and I'm not sure everybody in game B land is, but I think every kid should learn a manual craft, uh, carpentry, bricklaying, uh, you know, tile work, leather work, calligraphy, almost doesn't matter what it is. Uh, but learn some skill in great depth over a period. First, first experiment and try several crafts when you're, say, eight or nine. And by the time you're 10 or so, uh, or maybe 11, uh, you choose a craft uh, that is your craft. And then thereafter, you spend some significant amount of time uh, with exposure to experts, with masters, to actually get at least decent at brick laying or leather work or sewing or or whatever it happens to be so that everyone has a tangible physical set of skills that interact with the physical world and that's something again that it's really easy in today's uh, educational environment to miss entirely you basically live in the virtualized world of signs and symbols and uh, even worse uh, these days uh, in admittance to higher education it's only about your your skills and signs and symbols that gets you into the so-called elite universities and uh, and generates the so-called leaders of tomorrow and we wonder why they're narrow grinding sociopaths right we're selecting for that so let's not do that all right so we've got um, a need for uh, extended depth oriented world encountering craft education. We've got a need for more 
unstructured access to natural interpersonal complexity, which the current systems may be over-managing and squelching. And we've got this sense that um, the focus is too narrow and needs to be much broader. Now, my guess is if you went into educational institutions and talked to administrators and teachers, they would broadly agree with a lot of this stuff. They might even say, yeah, we're trying to inculcate mental health and virtues and give people practical skills. But then the question becomes, why isn't it working? Like, wh what are the common problems in actually instantiating this if you can get agreement from a lot of teachers that these are the kinds of things that are important for development? Uh, that's a great question. There's lots of problems. Let's, let's start with the question of virtues, right? And let's say in, in the United States example, typically the, the curriculum is set at the state level, millions of people. And the idea of what virtues to emphasize and how much emphasis to put on virtues in general then becomes a compromise across millions of people, many of them from different cultural traditions, uh, you know, et cetera. And so it ends up being watered down pablum. Right. Anything that's going to make seven million people, state of Virginia, not unhappy, all of them, essentially, or most of them is going to be pablum. So, again, I think the education fits very, very nicely with the Game B philosophy of bottom up, you know, co-evolution, essentially, and emergence. And that things like the virtues to be taught at the school at a proto B would be decided by the 150 people at the proto B, right? Uh, and there may be a, uh, there's always going to be horizontal communications amongst the lowest level of the community and say, all right, uh, this, we found this works over here and this works over here, but we don't have to water everything down to pablum. We can take a point of view and, uh, you know, bottom up education organized at the level of the face-to-face -face community at the Dunbar number of 150 people will be much more pointed, much more point of view uh, than uh, the, you know, the, the soft cereal that has to be served uh, to keep 7 million people from not rebelling, uh, no, no considerable minority of 7 million people uh, from rebelling. I think that's, uh, that's a big part of it. And the other are, are essentially institutional designs that have, that emerged in higher education or lower K to 12 education in particular. And that's the notorious teaching to the test. Uh, when you talk to teachers, and I know some teachers, my wife was a teacher, uh, the bane of public school education today is this mandatory teaching to the test. And uh, it was a Campbell's Law, I think it is, that uh, anything that is uh, rigorously measured soon becomes a worthless measure of what it was trying to measure, right? Uh, and if there was no testing and you just came in and sprung tests on everybody, the test would actually be probably fairly decent at seeing what people learn. But once you say we're going to do testing every year uh, and people start to be able to figure out what's going to be in the tests and that there's, uh, uh, you, know, in, you know, payback incentives, career incentives, promotion opportunities, bonuses now in some school systems for doing good on the standardized test, guess what? Teaching becomes how to game the test uh, rather than how to do real, uh, real education. So I think, especially in the United States, I don't know, I know less about other countries, uh, the idea of uh, teaching to the test has been grossly bad in uh, undermining the real efforts to you know, hold student education. Yeah, but, and by the way, there's nothing on these tests uh, for you know, interpersonal emotional intelligence or you know, how to form and operate in teams as both a leader and a follower. Uh, you know, there's nothing like that on these tests, right? And you know, how could there be? You can't standardize uh, number two pencil on filling in the little bubbles and and uh, and explore these kinds of areas. So I think uh, those are at least two of the of the big issues. 
I love this idea of sort of random testing. It seems like it would dramatically increase uh, the anti-fragility of the understanding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you, it would still be useful to have metrics, but, you know, let's say that you literally rolled some, uh, you know, uh, electronic dice and you just sampled and no one knew when or where, and it's at a sufficiently low frequency that there's no career incentives. Uh, uh, further, I would say that the there should never be personal accountability back to the school or the teacher for these tests, because if you make them high stakes, Campbell's Law comes into effect, Right. Uh, but yet, as a society, we may want to know how our schools are doing in, in long certain dimensions. And so there's, there's ways to reform the idea very radically, uh, much less testing, much more random and not personally accountable. Well, let's talk about how we could do uh, different kinds of evaluations then, because if uh, teaching to the tests and the kinds of things that are on tests provide us with a not only a faulty metric, but also a distorted educational process, how do we go about evaluating, uh, A, how people are doing in symbolic and knowledge tasks, and, and B, how they're doing in the other kinds of skill building that you can't necessarily capture on a paper test? What, what are yeah. we looking for to make sure it's working? Well, I think uh, one is you can built in, you know, essentially real-time, constant, small bits of assessment, right? Uh, let's, you know, imagine, again, our math uh, math work, right? As you're doing your your homework, et cetera. So let's say it's being input at least on into the computer. Uh, we can actually see how the kids are doing and in, in real time and in real context. And we could also see cross correlations. Oh, the kid's performance has fallen down a little bit in uh, math, but it's also fallen down in speech uh, and spelling and science. Hmm, something going on in the kid's life, probably not, has to, not having to do uh, with the actual details of learning math, right? And this is where Zach is very strong on the concept of teacherly authority, that uh, at the end of the day, to really assess where the kid is, you're going to need a human to do that assessment. Uh, and, and if we uh, think about the role of the teacher uh, in modern, you know, postmodern, metamodern education, it may well be much less about standing in front of the class and lecturing than it will be about doing assessment, doing one-on-one -on -one interventions uh, when those assessments show that the kids have some, some holes in what they're doing. So I think while we can use some technology to help gather as people are working how they're doing, rather than saying, we're doing a test, April 2021, right? Uh, and then secondly, you got to have uh, good humans in the loop, I think, is a very important part of it. I mean, so, uh, yeah. I, I was going to go off on uh, one other thing in the introductory area that, that we didn't get to. Uh, which I think is hugely important when thinking about education as a social institution. Uh, and this is uh, one of my favorite uh, topics, which applies, it's a lens that applies almost everywhere, but it really applies here. When we're thinking about the role of education uh, in a society, uh, I think a key thing is there's the usual trade-off between coherence and stability and the movement towards the new, right? And that's something that, again, I don't hear people talk about with respect to public school education. Uh, you know, uh, we want to have some coherence so people have some shared values, both with, within an age cohort, but also, also within the current mores of society. Uh, and we want some, some stability. But, you know, that's a real easy way to end up like the you know, Chinese in the 15th century, uh, where they had a very rigid Mandarin, Confucian, uh, exam-based system, and their society essentially ground to a halt. 
we want uh, to have the ability for the education system uh, to encourage people to explore away from uh, you know current thinking and you know, even challenge current virtues. You know, yeah, probably pretty high, pretty high standard on challenging uh, core virtues, but at least in, uh, uh, put in people's minds that you have to explore and that getting this balance between coherence and exploration, or what we call in evolutionary computation, exploitation versus exploration, I think is a really hugely important, almost top of the food chain uh, parameter that when we're thinking about uh, the role of education in society. So there's a kind of, uh, you know, tension that has to be balanced there between what we currently understand and where we need to get this consolidated coherence so that we have enough in common to function together in a society and the novelty and exploration that we need in order to challenge ourselves and challenge systems and discover things going forward. But what's the role of the past in all that? Like how important is say the study of classics or some kind of extended continuity of our knowledge in terms of establishing that coherence? Because I think one of the things that um, studying studying classics, studying arcane things, studying previous civilizations, or keeping up a continuity over multiple centuries in the curriculum helps to challenge um, whatever the current beliefs are, because it puts us in contrast uh, to what's been going on in the past. But it also provides an important stabilizing feature, it seems like. And it also in, uh, uh, provides some important vocabulary mm. elements, right? Uh, you know, think about uh, how radically embedded in the uh, cultural traditions of the last 300 years, uh, the Bible and Shakespeare are, right? Uh, I'm pretty well known as a militant atheist, uh, but I've read the Bible uh, cover to cover twice. And every 10 years, I reread uh, the first five books, the Decalogue, the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Hebrew Bible, plus the sixth one, Joshua. As I always say, if you're going to read the joke, you got to get to the punchline. And uh, Joshua is essentially the punchline of the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, so I read that every 10 years, uh, did it last year. Uh, and I go, why would a bloody-minded atheist uh, know so much about the Bible? Well, because the Bible is uh, you know, a whole bunch of mimetic particles that we use when we communicate with each other. From everything from the golden rule to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, et cetera. And so I think it's uh, this idea of having a curated set of classics, which most people are familiar with, is really important for a bunch of reasons. I, I like the uh, the additional uh, argument. I'm not sure how often I've heard that, but I think it's really true. The idea that uh, you know, sort of you know, reading, let's say Cicero or the uh, or uh, Tacitus, you know, the Romans in particular, uh, you're putting put in touch with a pretty sophisticated society, but one that is like radically and extremely different than ours. You know, where leading citizens think it's uh, perfectly good entertainment to go to the Colosseum and, uh, you know, see prisoners torn apart by lions, right? Or uh, the idea that the head of the family literally has the, uh, uh, the power of life or death over all the children, uh, the slaves, everybody else, where slavery is just absolutely part of life, uh, etc. And seeing these alien but fairly sophisticated societies is really a pretty interesting and head-turning uh, uh, experience, and it's you know again uh, to my mind one of the truly important things in all forms of education, not just K to twelve, but lifetime. And that which is uh, our social infrastructure is created by humans. This did not 
come down from uh, uh, Mount Sinai with Moses, right? Uh, this was all stuff humans invented along the way, and hence humans can change. The um, rereading of the Bible is fascinating because it uh, brings up for my mind something that's a little bit similar to the notion of an ongoing chosen craft in education, because there's something we gain from sampling things, right? Trying different crafts, reading new books, and there's something else we gain by rereading or continuing in the same um, genre of skill development, let's say. Because if we want to gauge depth as opposed to just knowledge acquisition, it's almost like the only way we can do that is by returning to the same material and understanding it in a new way. And I, I, I worry that there's not any real rereading at all right? You don't reread a book in grade 12 that you read in grade 10 that you read in grade seven. So there's no sense that people are being encouraged or placed in a context where they're going to understand more than they understood before about the same thing. Damn good. Uh, damn good point. Uh, I personally am a bit of a rereader. Uh, as I said, I uh, reread uh, the uh, first six books of the Bible every 10 years. Uh, I read the Bible cover to cover twice. Uh, and I suppose most famously, I've read Lord of the Rings 30 times, right? <laughs> uh, but there's other books I've reread as well. Uh, and I do think you make a very good point there. Uh, in fact, I'm going to actually think about that, whether that ought to be uh, something that a game B education ought to do. Pick a book and probably doesn't even matter that much what it is, so, much, so long as it's rich. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, I'll give you another example of a, a book I reread regularly, which is before I start any long writing project, I reread Aristotle's Poetics, uh, which is, you know, kind of rigid, kind of formulaic. On the other hand, you know, sort of listening to someone think through the issues of how to write, uh, probably for the first time, truly systemically, systematically, is just mind-blowing. So I I always do that every time I start a long writing, a short little book, you you can read it in in like an hour and a half. Uh, So there's another, there's there's a good example, you know, what happens if we... Uh, had people starting reading the poetics when they were first able to do so, say at age 10, and reread it every two years as they're developing their writing skills. And then, it, you know, maybe in 12th grade, 13th grade, uh, we have a course on Aristotle's poetics and weave it into the writing that we do as an example. I think the, um, the quality of richness, you're right, is absolutely essential here. Uh, it, this may be somewhat mythologized, but I remember being taught about the reintroduction of literacy in the court of Charlemagne. And they brought in this guy, Alquin of York, and they were going to teach the children of the nobility to read. And this hadn't been going on for several centuries. And what they had to teach them with was essentially the Bible and the Greek classics. And that's so different than an age-appropriate reader, right? So you're going to on the one hand, you give someone really rich, complex material, and you expect they're going to incompletely understand what they're reading, and that's okay, versus this kind of commercial, contemporary, graduated fashion where we only give them the material we think they'll be able to easily understand and master, and then they buy another book for the next year and another book for the next year. That seems like two completely divergent paths in terms of education. Yeah, though, I, 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 you would have to really work through uh, that uh, my guess, based on my knowledge of uh, cognitive science, is it probably is not a good idea to start a five-year-old with Cicero. Uh, no. They just, you know. Now, if, on the other hand, if you didn't do any education at all, 
other than some of the very, very basics till kids were 11 or 12. Yeah, you could read, an 11 year old could read Cicero and understand it, uh, but a five year old can't. So if you conclude that you want to begin uh, the education in literacy at a young age, then I suspect uh, that a more cognitively science informed approach of using a level of vocabulary, a length of words, a complexity of sentence structure, et cetera. And this is areas that are pretty well studied, uh, probably makes more sense. Yeah, it's obviously got to be a, a good fit between the cognitive capacity and the complexity of the material. Uh, at the same time, I think we have a, we've developed an educational culture in which the, if people don't get it easily, we treat that as a problem. <laughs> when we sh- it should be okay for even fairly young children to read things and be frustrated that they don't understand it all and can't follow all of it. We have a certain kind of weakness. We're like, oh, no, we better give them something simpler because they're not getting it. Yeah. And of course, if you're you're, uh, teaching to the test, that mitigates against that. Oh, I want the kids to get 95% understanding. Well, you know, a, uh, uh, an 11 year old reading Aristotle is not going to have 95% understanding, nor should they. Uh, but if they have 75% understanding, that's miraculous and puts them on the way to developing a very rich understanding. And it's actually a, a place to insert another uh, concept, uh, which I think I read first about in uh, the work of Hansi Freinach, so-called, uh, and also learned uh, more about it in uh, reading Zach Stein. And that's the idea of hierarchical complexity. Uh, I think another very important attribute of Game B education is to help people move up the stack of hierarchical complexity. Uh, People say, what the hell is hierarchical complexity? Uh, I'll just use the word complexity itself, right? When you and I talk about complexity, I say complexity, we both have a fairly similar picture of a whole bunch of things, of emergence and agent-based simulations and uh, high dimensionality and you know, network structures, et cetera. On the other hand, uh, probably the, the majority of Americans, you talk to them about complexity, they think it's the same thing, it's complicated, right? Uh, you know, a watch is complex. No, it's not, it's actually complicated. But uh, the fact that you and I have a similar, very rich, very nuanced understanding of the word complexity uh, is the sign that we're operating, in, at least in that domain and only in that domain, at a high level of hierarchical complexity. And choosing where to develop hierarchical complexity uh, and make it a common uh, attribute of society is a hugely important part of education. Uh, you know, uh, I happen to also have very much hierarchical complexity around computer technology. I actually know what's going down at the bits, literally below the bits and bytes at the chip level. Most people don't need to know that. There's no real reason to teach uh, hierarchical complexity with respect to information technology, uh, but with respect to uh, you know uh, you know deep ideas, the scientific method, right? I certainly wish we were doing a better job of teaching hierarchical complexity about the scientific method, so that people actually had a realistic understanding of what science is and isn't, right? For instance, you know a person's a charlatan. Uh, when uh, someone says science proves X, right? Science, if you actually understand the scientific method at a high level of hierarchical complexity, you know, science is a methodology, a ratchet, and that uh, by the rules of science, every statement in science is provisional, waiting for somebody to disprove it, right? Uh, So to say that science proves X, uh, essentially, the only thing it proves is that you're not a scientist, right? So choosing where to develop shared hierarchical complexity 
uh, is, I think, a gigantic uh, part of, of uh, fitting education uh, into society. Yeah, and getting the balance right between complexity in one area and complementary complexity in another area seems really important because when we're like talking about developing complexity of understanding in science, part of that is how we're being taught science, and part of it is another set of emotional skills and perspective taking skills and things like that that make you come into science with the assumption that it's obviously going to be more sophisticated than a simple dogma that you can assert about the world. Like that might be a skill set from another area of complexity development. So that intrigues me is how do the different elements of curriculum interact with each other? Because right now they're very, very modular. It seems like, right. There's no real, what physicality do we bring to mathematics? Uh, almost none, but our, you know, Pythagoras was working with stones and drawing geometry in the dirt. That that's a very embodied procedure. Yeah. In so fact, we, uh, some of the yeah. best, uh, some of the best uh, scientific writing on how we learn to read and write uh, is happening in cognitive science. A particular guy I like is Stanislas Dehaene. He's a French uh, cognitive science. He and his wife uh, are both uh, cognitive scientists and neuroscientists, and they work with young children. And, uh, you know, he makes the point in, uh, he wrote a really good book about uh, how we learn math, basically arithmetic. And he makes the, you know, the point on how grounded that really is, right? Uh, and, and that a lot of it starts with estimating, you know, is this pile bigger than that pile? If so, how much? A little bit or a lot, right? And he also, uh, they also demonstrate that some animals have, uh, you know, some rudimentary uh, quantitative capabilities as, as well. And, uh, you know, one of the implications of their work is particularly for very young children, you know, manipulating stones and things is probably a very good way to take advantage of what was already genetically built in uh, before you start teaching uh, the formalisms. And of course, a lot of us remember that uh, we, you know, I, I, our teachers tried to suppress it, but I was a great one for doing math by counting on my fingers under the table, right? Uh, and uh, frankly, I would encourage that, anything that works. And uh, the more we understand our genetic slash cognitive science heritage, I think the more it's pointing out, particularly for young children, people trying to get the concept uh, that dealing with the physical is actually a good idea. That notion of our genetic and cognitive heritage and also the, you know, the complexity of embodied human brains and social situations and the, the way we now understand systems that learn is so different than what we thought 20 years, 50 years ago, 80 years ago. It seems like there's a tremendous lag between the institutions we've set up and our knowledge of how systems learn. Oh, it's maddening. And uh, I actually uh, dabbled in that a little bit about uh, eight or nine years ago. I was trying to uh, help the University of Virginia set up a PhD program in cognitive science. And we got uh, buy-in from uh, amazing breadth from the medical school, from the engineering school, from uh, the psychology department, which was gonna be the core, even from the business school. You know, what's the one place that we didn't get any buy-in? The school of education, right? Uh, they're famously 40 or 50 years behind in uh, taking the, the knowledge that is, as you point out, especially in the last 30 years, it's just been exponential in how we learn and, you know, what parts are pre-programmed and what parts are subject to reprogramming and, and all this sort of stuff uh, is uh, it's, it's miserable. It's horrible. And it's bad that 
our schools of education, which then train our teachers, uh, are frankly aggressively rejecting uh, modern learning and cognitive science, which is nuts. You know, when you were talking about the narrowness of the educational approach and the the goal of producing the, a virtuous, generally functional citizen, it made me think that there's a lot of areas that really ought to be or might be included within our educational system that are currently not treated as education. For example, uh, prisons and the idea of reforming an individual to make them a better citizen is somewhat analogous to what we're hoping to do then with children. Or immigration is like that. We're going to bring someone in and we hope that through a series of processes, they become what we want to have as a good citizen. Like how, how broadly can education be applied? What, what are the areas of society that are really educational problems and we don't treat them as or think of them as educational problems? Very, very, very good uh, point in that if thought correctly, if uh, education is pervasive across our society, right? There's, you know, uh, the examples you give, uh, reform in prisons, right? Uh, Certainly an educational problem, at least ought to be, you know, more and more, they're just treated as lock them up, keep them off the streets. But uh, uh, at least in theory, one ought to be able to help re-educate people. Imagine things like the virtues, uh, self-control, focus, et cetera, could be very helpful uh, to help people reintegrate. And with immigration, uh, you have similar issues, though there, you know, some of it's going to be about, uh, all right, how do we think about, you know, how does... The, the new society think about things versus the old society. And of course, there's a tension there uh, that uh, I think in modern societies, at least, we don't believe we need to, you know, bend and break the immigrant to be exactly like us. Uh, you know, we want them to be able to choose what they want to adopt of ours. Some core things they better, they must adopt of ours, uh, but leave some room for them to have, uh, you know, some of the flavor of their uh, culture. Uh, and some of that will bleed into our culture and make our culture richer. So again, uh, those are our educational uh, programs. Uh, but I think you have to, you have to, especially that immigration one, think about with some real nuance. Yeah. Uh, another area that to, to expand on your question uh, that current K through 12 education and upper higher education doesn't do hardly at all is focus focus on low level cognitive skills. Uh, you know, think about uh, you know, things like uh, doing uh, mindfulness meditation and learning how to concentrate and control uh, the jabberings in your brain, uh, things of that sort. Uh, there's a whole array of, you know, low level, you know, non-verbal even uh, cognitive skills, which could be very useful and should be part probably of, uh, of educations at, at all parts of the life cycle. That's a really important point, I think, and maybe we should dig into that a little bit more because I, I heard a story that some years ago, a project called Tools of Mind introduced some early elementary school alternatives in a New York system. And what they did was they taught extended play uh, as a precursor to extended thinking. And they also taught um, nuanced discrimination. So rather than having kids write the letter A a hundred times, they had to write it 10 times and decide which one was the best one. Hmm. So they're, they're using these uh, 
extension and detail and nuanced evaluation mechanisms. And it turned out these kids sort of shot forward several grade levels in terms of the metrics they were using. And the program was shut down because it was deemed unfair to the kids who weren't in the program, even though the program was not subsequently then implemented for all the kids. But it seems like that's an example of some of these proto skills that are necessary to engage and galvanize general cognitive development. So what is your sense of what, what are some of those proto skills? What are these low level capacities um, that really set the whole thing in motion? Yeah, I got to admit, I am not an expert in this domain, so I'm just going to be bullshitting here. So let's, yeah, uh, let's, 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 be, <laughs> let's be clear. Uh, for whatever reason, my uh, explorations of cognitive science haven't actually gone into that particular uh, corner. Uh, but I would suggest, uh, you know, someone, attention is huge, right? Of course, you got to be careful. It's not natural for a five-year-old to be able to have, uh, you know, deep and long attention, uh, but you can do some attention exercises and, you know, let the the attention they have be stronger, let them be less distracted at the micro level. Uh, I like the one about uh, discernment and curation. I hadn't thought about that one. That's a very interesting skill, Uh, you know, develop the skill to uh, make, have perspective and make you know, decisions based on non-explicit criteria. You know, the idea of write it, you know, write a bunch of letters and choose which one you think is the most like B. That's kind of an interesting exercise, right? The ability to, uh, and you know, one's from, this does come from more formal uh, science, uh, is uh, doing things in your head is actually very useful. Uh, You learn them in a much more solid way. For instance, rotating surfaces in your head. Uh, there are games uh, you can make this fun, you know, all right, which one of these will plug into that, right? And you essentially have to rotate a three-dimensional object or a two to start with a two-dimensional object and say, okay, this one does, but this one doesn't. And doing that a bunch rather than, you know, you know, once every five years in an IQ test uh, will actually increase your ability to do, uh, you know, spatial temporal manipulations in your head. Uh, I'm also a great believer, even though this is so old school, damn, damn, right, you are a geezer. Uh, I think mental arithmetic is hugely important, uh, you know, to be able to uh, at least come up uh, to an order of magnitude on a calculation without using a calculator or even a pencil and paper is a hugely valuable skill, uh, So that you, particularly so you get the right range of a number, so you have a sense of its uh, you know, about big, we're talking millions here or thousands, right? Uh, doing that mentally, i found that people who can do mental math are uh, more fluid thinkers in a broad uh, array of, of disciplines, not just mathematical ones. Uh, so I think those are, those are some examples. What else would fit into that area of low-level cognition uh, that's generalizable? Uh, was, you know, uh, gestalt psychology, here's a good one. Getting people to become aware of the concept of foregrounding and backgrounding uh, is really interesting. And uh, you could even, I could imagine some exercises where you tune, show people to modulate uh, their focus between the foreground and the background. Uh, this also comes from uh, cognitive science research. Western people tend to uh, for, uh, put more emphasis on the foreground than they do on the background. Well, again, this is a, a cliche and it's broad, but the scientific research does support it. Uh, people from East Asia in particular uh, tend to uh, put more attention on the background relative to the foreground than Westerners do. 
And they have certain skills that come from that uh, that we don't have. Well, we have some skills that they don't have, uh, which comes from being more strongly foregrounded. And so uh, experimenting with foregrounding and backgrounding and modulating that, I suspect, would give people a very interesting uh, low-level cognitive skill that they could apply to all kinds of things. And you could teach that to a four-year-old, right? I I could have that discussion with my granddaughter in two more years, and I'm pretty confident that we could actually come up with something, uh, you know, that would would do that. Uh, So there's another example. But again, keep in mind, I'm just making this shit up. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation, Jim, because it really would set you up for um, intentional attention and perspective switching in many ways down the road. One thing that uh, just popped into my mind is is sort of your life, which is to say, uh, how would I put this? You've been fortunate or maybe strategic to spend time with some of the smartest, most interesting, most potentially social, u- socially useful people around. Have you? Do you have any observations about their educational backgrounds? Do you see any commonalities in their educational histories or their personal learning strategies? People who impress you as being a really competent and smart and useful. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're right. I have uh, had a libido for those people, right? <laughs> Since I was quite young. And, uh, you know, why did I quit business and go to the Santa Fe Institute? And I said, because business is a mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, and, uh, you know, the best scientists are uh, an inch wide and a mile deep, right? And the people at Santa Fe Institute, they're a mile wide and a mile deep, right? These are some amazing sons of bitches. Uh, so that's a great question. I think back of the people I know who, uh, who I found myself drawn to because of the powers of their personal, uh, skill, intellectual and personal skills. One thing that does come back in almost every case is they first learned one thing very deeply. You know, they were really good at X, uh, but they were not monomaniacal about it. They were also very good at Y. They, they, they self-taught Y, Z, A, B, C. So it's self-teaching, depth in one thing, and then a, a lifelong commitment to self-education, I would say, uh, when I think about you know the, just the you know the people I know who are just most exemplary, uh, they they have had the discipline to master something in great depth, but they've always uh, spent a significant part of their personal development budget learning other things. And in fact, it's hey, now that you reminds me that was one of my interviewing questions uh, when I was back hiring you know top grade uh, people into my companies. Uh, one of the questions I'd love to ask was, what's the mo- thing you most recently taught yourself that had nothing to do with work, right? And often the answer was nothing. And then it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, and so the ability to self-learn is to my mind, from a base of knowing at least one thing deeply is uh, to my mind, the hallmark of the people I have found uh, personally most interesting in my life. And these people, um, including but not limited to Zach Stein, many of them must have comments and criticisms about education generally. Uh, I wonder what you what you feel like you've heard a lot from different people who you respect in terms of what they think the education system needs or where it's insufficient. 
Well, that's basically all, everything we've been talking about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, I think that's really what we've been talking about. And you know, again, I'm not an expert in education, and so essentially, I'm channel channeling the things I've heard from uh, people who uh, know a lot more about this uh, than I do. Uh, so is, is there any biggest single takeaway that we could talk about here? I think all the people that think about education well think about it way more broadly than uh, sitting in a classroom for six hours a day. Uh, I think they all agree that the current form of teaching for the test is a horribly bad idea. Uh, I think they would all agree that more focus on basic cognitive tools would have huge payoff, uh, particularly if it starts earlier. Uh, I think people would differ on on you or my sense that having a canon of classics uh, that everybody knew and that we regularly revisited, I would say that's not necessarily a, a unanimous view of people who thought deeply about education. I'd say that people also differ some on how important a teacher is in the loop. I mean, particularly this is Zach Stein's uh, lodestone. This is where he goes. Teacherly authority is absolutely indispensable. And I suppose I didn't start uh, with that perspective, but having listened to him a lot now, I'm coming, coming around on that, that uh, there's some special skill called being a teacher, right? And uh, being exposed to people who are good teachers is probably very helpful in uh, in this mission we call education. Yeah, you probably at the very least need to see uh, an actual human being template higher levels of complexity than the one you're operating with. Yeah, that's And that's interesting and hugely important and also very difficult, particularly in our goddamn society that's becoming so hierarchical and so bimodal. I mean, uh, essentially in the United States, if you either went to a four-year college or you're being ground to dust, right? And uh, you're living in a very different place without interface to uh, other people. And so you're not getting the social modeling of hierarchical complexity uh, or these cognitive skills that we're talking about nearly as much as you used to when people were more, much more mixed up. And so I think this, uh, this problem is bad and getting worse. Are there any specific educational projects that you know about that strike you as interesting or promising? Well, uh, uh, some friends of mine ran a project called Raw Learning, which was very interesting. Uh, and it was essentially a schooling system. It was really an unschooling school system, uh, but one that had some structure to it. And, uh, you know, they encouraged kids to, uh, you know, kids wanted to fight. You know, I keep coming back, but they got, had boxing gloves and put them in a ring, let them fight, right? All the boys had pocket knives by the time they were 10. Uh, learning crafts was part of what they did. Uh, they had outside people come in uh, from various domains and talk about what they did to, uh, you know, and let the kids interact with them in a very rich way for a couple hours. Uh, so that was a really interesting project and unfortunately kind of fell apart when these two folks moved on from it and uh, think in fighting. It wasn't institutionalized enough. The whole point was not to be institutionalized, but it was not institutionalized enough uh, to, to carry on. Uh, I think actually of the of the canned programs, Montessori education is actually a quite good one. Uh, there's a lot of good things going on there, very much focused on hands-on, particularly for younger children. Some of it's a little doctrinaire. Oh, you can't do this, can't do that. I don't tend to be so doctrinaire about such things. But in terms of other things, 
I'm not really fully aware of anything what I'd call a comprehensive game B educational system that that has addressed all the things that we've talked about. How about you? Do you know any any such things? Uh, yeah, I'm aware of a few projects, but they all seem to be just in the mm, conceptual formatting stage at the moment. Um, but uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I talked recently to Creston Davis from the Global Center for Advanced Studies. They, they have some very interesting things going on there. Um, there's, uh, you know, this thing they're trying to set up in Texas, the Wild Vessel Project. <laughs> the Wild? I've never heard of that. Uh, yeah, it's uh, um, Forrest Landry's an advisor on that. Zach Schlosser and uh, a couple of people down there doing some interesting things. What was the name of that again? Wild Vessel. Wild Vessel. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, I think they're just uh, they're just templating their first module at the moment. But the idea is to have sort of alternative uh, teachers collaborating with each other in a way that could potentially be scalable. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's a couple of those things, but they all they're all still in the uh, you know promising phase rather than the manifest stage. Yeah, uh, in my conversation with Zach, he clearly Zach Stein clearly has some ideas, uh, but he's a philosopher, not necessarily a builder. And so he lays them out to the world and, you know, hopefully somebody will run with them and, and, and try to bring some of these things into, into being and, you know, be balanced between the various elements that we've talked about today. Probably uh, being uh, monomaniacally obsessed with any one of them is a mistake. Uh, and, and then the other one I, I always often stress is let us design these things with a light touch, realizing we're almost certainly wrong. Uh, that's the other problem we talked about, about why is K through 12 education 50 years behind on cognitive science? Because they have a tendency to believe they have the answers, God damn it, right? And when you uh, take a dogmatic approach to something as complex, truly complex as uh, education, uh, that's a bad idea. Uh, this has got to be empirically grounded uh, with an experimental mindset that we're going to do the best we can with version A, but realize we're not right. And we're going to continually tinker with it, make it better, do experiments in parallel. Uh, again, this bottoms-up approach of validating things at the low level and then let it bubble up through horizontal communication uh, strikes me as especially appropriate to uh, the question of, of education and how education uh, is embedded in, in society as, an or, as a truly organic part. The, the question of where aggression fits into this is very interesting because I, I can see people pushing back on your, <laughs> your idea that the kids should be able to fight. <laughs> and it, there's clearly some ways to get aggression wrong in educational systems. We don't want to be training neo-Nazis and we don't want to have excessive bullying. But at the same time, there's a kind of phobic anti-aggression stance that a lot of uh, civilized educational systems seem to have now, where there's absolutely no acknowledgement and no training and signs of aggression, particularly in the boys, uh, seem like they're signs of a pathology that needs to be quashed rather than an instinct that needs to be cultivated somehow. And that, I think, connects to some of these concerns around like the fragility of reactive woke culture, let's say, because, uh, you know, one project that they're trying to set up this University of Austin project. Yeah, yeah, very familiar right? with that. Very interesting. You know, they're going to bring back a kind of classic sense of humanities and tech, and they're going to try to create spaces that are safe from attacks by people who think that this might be socially problematic, unjust, or too aggressive in some way. 
Um, and I'm curious, right? They seem to really feel like they're that the American higher education facilities are under siege by hysterical versions of social justice and moral sensitivity. Do, do you think that's as big a problem as they seem to think it is? I would say, fuck yes. Uh, it's a huge problem. Uh, and I'd say a great book to read. And uh, he's uh, they're involved with uh, the uh, University of Austin project is a book called The Coddling of the American Mind of Good Intentions and Bad Ideas. They're setting up a generation for failure uh, by uh, Greg Lukianoff, who's going to be on my podcast in February, and Jonathan Haidt, who's the uh, one of the, I guess, the founder of the Heterodox Academy. This is a huge problem uh, in our society. This idea of uh, wimpy ass safety first, right? You know, it's it's fucking nuts, right? Uh, and you know, you, you can probably guess where I come in on this with respect to aggression. I think aggression is good, right? But on the other hand, you're, it also has to be virtuous aggression. The idea of bullying, for instance, is absolutely reprehensible. The strong should protect the weak. They should never exploit the weak. You know, that's the, you know, the, the, the virtue of the knight going all the way back to the 12th century. And so both sides of that uh, you know, need, to be, need to be taught. And, uh, and, and say specifically for boys, look at the social pathology of boyhood in public schools today. It sucks. Donkey dicks. It's terrible. Uh, if I had a boy, I would really be uh, loath to send him to the public school for the attempt to squash boyness, right? Uh, you know, boys are, not all, of course, everything's on a statistical distribution, but way to the, uh, the, the other side are uh, into rough play, uh, you know, aggression, uh, you know, establishing friendships around people they've been in fights with, you know, all those sorts of stuff. And to try to uh, squash human nature in that way is horribly deforming. And look at the results. Uh, boys now are just falling grossly behind in, uh, in education. 60% of bachelor's degrees are now uh, issued to women in the United States. Now, it's, uh, it's a damn good thing that it's not the other way, where it used to be a third of bachelor's degrees went to women. But why isn't it 50-50? You know, why have we gone so far uh, to essentially disempower boyness uh, in this uh, uh, very wimpy-ass fucking way? I hate that shit, right? And uh, I've recently run into uh, this kind of uh, safetyism uh, at my alma mater, MIT, uh, where uh, it's been in the news a fair bit, uh, the MIT uh, administration uh, disinvited a speaker. Uh, it was a scientific talk on exoplanet atmospheres. And, uh, you know, I've actually seen the talk. He gave it in, in a different venue. Very good and very nerdy, right? Nothing to do with politics at all. Well, it turned out this guy had written a, uh, and with a co-author, had uh, written an essay for Newsweek magazine, uh, basically opposing thumbs on the scale forms of affirmative action in academic hiring, you know, the so-called equity word that we hear about. Uh, and he's laid out, he and his uh, writing partners have laid out an alternative called uh, uh, merit, fairness, and equality. And they go into some detail and distinguish two. And whether you agree with, uh, with Dorian Abbott or the, uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion folks, his point of view is certainly a legitimate one. In fact, in a recent Pew survey, 75% of Americans agreed that you should always hire the best person for a job, even if it negatively impacts diversity. So, uh, you know, whether you agree or disagree with Dorian Abbott, 
his idea is certainly well within the American mainstream. But the MIT, you know, some students, as you can imagine, got on Twitter and go, oh, no, no, we can't have somebody who has an idea different than ours speak on campus about exoplanet atmospheres. And the goddamn cowardly administration uh, has, uh, you know, kowtowed and actually banned him. So we started, a group of us, and I was one of the co-founders, have started a new organization called uh, uh, MIT Free Speech Alliance. And it's amazing the number of faculty, students, uh, alums uh, who have signed up for this thing. And, uh, you know, we are, and especially the more we dig in, the more absurd this whole thing uh, uh, has turned out to become. In fact, for instance, faculty did a poll uh, on, uh, so faculty fora on free speech. Uh, and you, I was, we were all shocked. Do you feel on an everyday basis that your voice or the voices of your colleagues are constrained at MIT? Between 52 and 60% of faculty members voted yes on an everyday basis. Your voice or your voices, your colleagues are constrained at MIT. And we've dug into this uh, further and further. Uh, it, what it appears to be is the administration reacting to the hypersensitive students uh, that that's the that's the energy. So something has gone vastly wrong in uh, the education of an awful lot of students, even at the most elite universities, that they can't tolerate an idea of which they disagree, uh, even second order being on their campus. Again, the talk was about exoplanet atmospheres. And the guy disagreed with them about thumbs on the scale forms of affirmative action. And the little darlings had a shit fit, right? Uh, what the hell kind of thing is going wrong in their education? Yeah, it does seem like they're probably is a strong correlation between the the lack of training and experience around aggression, the lack of turning aggression into an interpersonal intelligence, and this inability to tolerate uh, upsetting points of view or to be friends with people we don't like, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's disgusting. The other, uh, another, another example about all this, uh, one of my uh, people I've met through my podcast who has become a friend and is just as, as wonderful a fellow as I know on the face of the earth. We joke with each other, you know, we must be brothers from another mother. Uh, was young, uh, uh, Tyson Yunkaporta, who's an indigenous Australian fellow, uh, as he would call himself a black fellow, right? Which in uh, Australian means uh, Aboriginal. And, uh, you know, he's, he and I've chatted on the air and privately about the amazing initiation rituals for Young young people in his tribe and in other uh, uh, Aboriginal groups, and these things uh, would scare the living dog shit out of your American wimpy ass upper middle class suburbanite. Right? You know, uh, two weeks of you know dire, scary stuff. Sometimes more, both for the men and the women. These are young, you know, thirteen, fourteen, uh, and there's you know repeated uh, initiations at different parts of your life. At, uh, you know, at, at different ages, coming of age, you know, getting married, uh, becoming a full mature adult, etc. And uh, the fact that we don't have these kinds of really intense and indeed scary uh, initiation processes in our society uh, strikes me as uh, one of the things that contributes to this, uh, uh, this fragility of, uh, of young folks today. And education should certainly include some of that. Uh, yeah. You know, you know one, of, one of the great programs there is Outward Bound, right, which has been a, a long time program. It takes people, people die on Outward Bound trips, right? And, you know, I've never been on an Outward Bound trip, but I've done some outdoor shit where there was a chance we could have died. We didn't. 
good, right? But having had those experiences actually makes you a much more resilient person. Uh, you know, sitting in your upper middle class suburbia, uh, what a ridiculous thing, the number of uh, like 12 year olds who had never been out of the presence of an adult in their life. I go, what? It's like some 30, 40% of 12 year olds had never been out of the presence of an adult in their life. Uh, when we were kids, they just turned us loose, you know, at uh, nine o'clock in the morning, come back for dinner. And what we did, better they didn't know, right? <laughs> and so uh, I suspect we're, uh, and this is uh, Hates and uh, Lubinoff's uh, point in the coddling of the American mind. Uh, is that we have really done a huge disservice to our young people uh, by not uh, allowing to have challenging and downright dangerous experiences. Uh, there's different plausible sources of that fragility, right? Some is the way we're parenting. Some is the, uh, the fact that a lot of people are living in urban environments and don't have to encounter any of the complexities and stresses of interacting with nature and animals and tasks and wildernesses. Um, there's also a kind of argument about whether we've been infected by a philosophy or infected by a perverse set of economic incentives. I mentioned Creston Davis, who I talked to a little while ago from the Global Center for Advanced Studies, and they're trying to leverage cryptocurrencies and make their programs debt-free and things like that. And his concern about the University of Austin and similar projects is that unless you reform the financing approaches, you'll end up binding that education into those perverse game A dynamics, regardless of your intention and regardless of the caliber of your teachers. And he's thinking about this sort of fragility, not so much as the result of a philosophy like, oh, we all read too much uh, European continental philosophy in the 1960s, and now we have the wrong educational approach. He's thinking about the gradual undermining of the educational system by the economic incentives to the point where we're basically just um, serving economically leveraged customers. And if because the customer is always right, then it becomes a hive of fragility that contaminates the rest of the society. Yeah, so I that's a very good yeah, point. I'm curious how how important you think a change in the economics of education is. I think gigantic. I mean, uh, consider it an, an elite uh, education. Well, I, I, first, I'm going to step back and say, let's take a comparative perspective. So I think we're seeing some of the same zaniness and fragility even in Europe, where costs of education are zero in many cases. So it's, there's also a cultural comp component of it. You know, uh, but it's probably worse in the U.S. Uh, and so I would expect there's the cultural component plus the economic component. Uh, I, I doubt it's either, uh, and the two seem to be reinforcing each other in particularly perverse ways in the in the USA at the present time. To go to a four-year undergraduate education at elite uh, university today, three hundred thousand dollars. What the fuck, right? Uh, when I was an undergraduate at MIT, a scrapping working class kind of dude, had to work my way through uh, you know, a little bit of debt, a little bit of work study, a little bit of scholarship, and a little bit from myself and my parents. Uh, $16,000, right? Even after adjusting for inflation, that's about $60,000, $65,000. So an elite education in the United States now five times as expensive after uh, adjusting for inflation. And that is a grotesque uh, force field. And I know lots of uh, millennials who I've gotten to know through my Game B work and, uh, and also through my work in regenerative agriculture. And uh, those who have not been smart in avoiding uh, student debt uh, are literally crushed by it, right? You know, they're now moving into their, many of them in their late 30s, 
and they're still paying you know, significant parts of their income on student debt, which keeps them from doing the kind of work that they would really love to do. Uh, and it's just a, a horrible thumb on, on their spirit, right? Uh, and I suppose, you know, to the customer's always right. If you're paying 300 grand a year, you better get what you want, right? Uh, so 300,000 for four years, you're, you're going to get what you want. So I would say that uh, that's utterly insane, bad, crazy. And we go and we probably talk for an hour on, on how we got to that point. But it's, uh, it, it's certainly not about value. Uh, if the cost of education, and I can tell you this, uh, I am involved in some of the governance at MIT. So I can actually see how the sausage is made. Uh, at the Brain and Cognitive Science Department, where I'm on the Board of Visitors. And uh, uh, the education is no better than it was uh, in uh, 1975, and it's five times more expensive after controlling for inflation. Uh, so something's gone very badly wrong there. Uh, and I think that another real big issue is that we have uh, combined two things which don't belong in the same box. One is training for a career, a calling, or a craft, and the general education of the person and the citizen. Right. So people go to Stanford, take computer science and then go, you know, work in some tech company building websites. Well, let me tell you, uh, you can learn how to build websites in six months under the tutelage of someone who knows how to build websites. And you can become very, very good at it in two or three years being paid the whole while. Uh, so an awful lot of what we call career calling craft work ought to really move to an apprenticeship model. Uh, you know, if you're somebody who really wants to, say, learn how to be a software web UI designer, uh, start when you're 16, part-time, work-study, being paid, uh, and, uh, you know, not being paid a lot, probably being paid, uh, you know, $10 an hour, uh, but then, it's, but you're not paying anybody else, and you're getting, uh, uh, you know, really good uh, education and practical things, and your work is actually going out into the world as the products that are being created. And I think that applies to a tremendous amount of career calling and craft things, probably most of them. But, and, but then you, they also try to commingle the liberal arts distributed education component in it. That's partially how they justify these ridiculous prices. And that can easily be done informally uh, under, let's say, a teacherly authority. You sign up with uh, Lehman Pascal, who you talk with uh, uh, for half an hour, uh, uh, twice twice a month on on what you're reading, what you're thinking, maybe what you should read next. Guess what? That doesn't cost three hundred thousand dollars either. And you combine the two, and you're not in debt at all. You've been making money since you're 16 years old. You're learning uh, really practically what your craft, your career, or your calling is all about. And you have this amazing guru, Layman Pascal, who you talk to twice a month for half an hour, uh, who has been guiding you in your reading and your thinking, and has been referring you to other sources, etc. Now, why isn't that a hell of a lot better model that doesn't put people under the thumb of game A economics? There's a real, I mean, there's a whole set of, of perverse value exchanges here. Like, are you getting the education you're paying for? Well, clearly not if you're paying way more for the same education. And likewise, are you getting, how much education are we getting for the amount of time that's being put in? We touched on this at the beginning. You know, I know in the United States now, there seems to be a lot of bipartisan consensus around universal pre-K, which... You know, maybe if your home life is not as socially sophisticated as the school, okay, maybe parents need that extra year or two of free daycare. But it seems like the, the presumption is that more institutional education over longer periods is necessarily better. And that seems really dubious because it doesn't address the problem of how much are we getting for what. 
There was a book a couple of years, a couple of years ago, there was a great book called the smartest kids in the world. And it, what it did was it followed American exchange students going to the countries that score highest on international education and exchange students from those countries coming to the United States. And at the time it was Poland, Finland, and South Korea. And the woman who wrote the book talked to the South Korean education minister. And he said, we have a terrible education system. And she said, what do you mean? You score really high. He said, our students go to school longer than anyone else. And they all have private tutors after the fact. So he's like, we're not getting good results for the amount of effort we're putting in. And that seems like a really huge uninspected problem. And it's an opportunity cost, right? If, as we talked earlier, the really rich things you need to learn, you learned at recess in an unstructured play. If you're a South Korean kid who's just ground to dust with, uh, you know, after school cram schools and all this sort of stuff, you don't have any room at all for this unstructured play. And, uh, uh, you know, I I know some Korean people and I love them, but uh, (laughs) shall we say, I wish they had had more time for unstructured play. I'll I'll leave it there at that. So that's the other cost, right? And, you know, to this uh, mandatory, not mandatory, universal pre-K, Again, you know, these are these are unfortunately how we've organized our society, and this is gameism. You know, if your if your status comes through uh, having fancy cars, big house, and living in a fancy neighborhood, and both husband and wife uh, have to work at the limit of their economic earning capacity to hold the status through possessions and positional goods in place, then yeah, uh, you know, custodial care of the children uh, is helpful. Uh, but if we lived in a game B society where status through possessions and positional goods was not what we organized our life around, and instead we uh, organized it around uh, human well-being, we would not be all having to operate at the absolute cutting edge of our economic uh, maximum. And we'd have a much richer organic on-the-ground community where, again, we could have uh, children engaged in free play and free uh, self-organizing activities. I famously refused to go to kindergarten. Uh, in those days, it was optional. I think it is still actually optional in many states, uh, but relatively few people just put their foot down and said, no, I'm not going. Uh, and when I heard about what they allegedly taught in kindergarten, I said, and, you know, because they wouldn't let you, in those days, they didn't teach reading and writing. I already knew how to read and write. And they made you take naps. And I had stopped taking naps when I was two. And I was like, God damn, if I'm going to go do finger painting and take naps, fuck that. And so I literally put my foot down and said, nope, not going to kindergarten. And uh, I basically had an extra year of independent play and organizing, building of tree forts and playing uh, pickup games and uh, just hanging out. And I never regretted not going to kindergarten. I can tell you that. Yeah, that stuff uh, provided, uh, provided a kid has access to the spaces and opportunities to do those things. It seems like those other free range activities are the ones that build up the proto skills that they're going to need for educational performance down the road. Um, you know, one of the things that pops into my head here that really interests me is the sort of anticipated world that an educational process is aimed at. Like if it's, you know, that sort of 19th century American German idea that we're producing the factory workers or, you know, even today we're like, oh, we're going to need more computer programmers. We're going to need more whatever. We're anticipating a world and we're producing people for the world we think is going to exist. But at the same time, the mid 21st century seems like such an unstable, unpredictable period of time. 
where ecological and economic and technological and social factors, and any one of which could radically transform the situation. And, you know, and we see people around the world really feeling like they can't trust and predict anymore what it's going to be like very soon. So if that's the world we're anticipating, how do we train people for uh, instability, for a non-specific, highly disruptable near future? Like what's the education for that niche? Yeah, that's a really good point. Of course, it's a truism, right? Uh, anyone who's a technologist, uh, what they learned in college is obsolete within six or seven years, and you know, at least a bit. And ten years, it's almost passe. Uh, and some some deep principles, but an awful lot of the superficials are are uh, irrelevant. So clearly, in a rapidly uh, evolving world, the ability to learn has to come up. A, the ability to learn in a lifetime sense has got to be a core skill, right? Because you're going to have to reinvent yourself multiple times. Uh, and I think that's hugely important. And that's where this distinction between career craft, calling and craft learning on one side uh, and uh, educated person, citizen learning on the other are really two different things. Career calling and craft, uh, you know, you need to be productive in the craft as it exists today, uh, but also be taught the general principles that allows you to evolve as the craft evolves. And some crafts do evolve and some don't. Bricklaying isn't all that different than it was in the days of the Romans, while, uh, uh, let's say, uh, doing animations rather different than it was being done with uh, paintbrushes and stuff not, not all that long ago. Uh, so the you know, degree that you want to build that into the uh, career calling and craft depends on the craft. Uh, but in terms of the other side of it, the educated person, citizen, uh, lifetime learning has certainly got to be something that's part of that because uh, you may decide to change your, your career calling or craft, right? Uh, or you may be a person who uh, decides to, uh, to spend most of their work doing community service uh, that's not really uh, anything having much to do with uh, you know, economic optimization. And so that's where the that second side of the education, they should be thought of as two separate things. Today, we kind of got them all commingled and confused and not doing a good job on either. So if we separate those and we put the craft training to one side and look at what the general education consists of, right? There's a certain number of, of regular modules that we have today that we think of as general education, right? Reading and writing and arithmetic and uh, phys ed, things like that. Uh, phys ed actually is interesting to me because yes, obviously you're going to do better if you have physical exercise every day, but there's not much, when I went to school, there was no ed in phys ed. Uh, it's very bizarre that you can take a physical education class for 12 years and walk away, not knowing where your pancreas is or what vitamins you need in order to survive. Like I learned nothing about physiology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mine was the same. It was just, you know, playing games basically, yeah. which so was the, good. The question is what, what should the basic modules be? What does the general education have to include? You know, I, I always think that hedonics or any the ability to uh, regulate yourself and other people for pleasures of various kinds it is a hugely important thing for living a meaningful quality of life with other people, not touched on in the school system at all. What would you, what would you add in as, as modules of basic education? Mm, wow, damn. That's, again, I'm not an expert in this domain. I haven't necessarily spent that much time thinking about it. So again, I'm just making this shit up. Sure. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> you know, I think one of the, some of the things that we touched, touched upon before the basic cognitive skills, uh, of things like attention and uh, coherence and group interaction. Uh, I mean, when you, and you can decompose them from their content, right? 
uh, and, and actually get down to the basic cognitive skills that you need to do these kinds of things. Hedonics, yeah, that's, of course, going to be controversial, right? Uh, uh, and I think if you're going to do, go in those directions, they have to, it has to be very local. Get back to the, you know, the question before. Teaching hedonics at the level of 7 million people and finding consensus on what was a reasonable thing to do ain't never going to happen. On the other hand, having a, a you know a specific point of view from 150 people, I think you could probably do some interesting things there. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, you, you know interesting point about physical education. Now, I again I would separate you know separate things that don't belong together. I think organized play and physical competence and fitness are a thing, uh, but they're a different thing uh, than learning about uh, good nutrition, you know, getting enough sleep and things of that sort. Uh, so I would put in, add to the curriculum uh, somewhere, uh, some education on human physical and mental well-being uh, from a scientific perspective, uh, which, as you point out, at least in my day, we didn't have any of that. They may have more of it today. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, so that would be certainly important. The other, uh, other one that you don't see much of is uh, real education in um, creativity. Uh, now, sometimes you get it secondhand through art or music classes, but frankly, not very much. And in our emerging world, creativity is going to be at an increasing premium. And so exercises specifically uh, around, you know, using creativity and as far out of the box as you can get, I think would be a really uh, good thing uh, to add. Uh, and then the other one, particularly is, uh, this is huge, actually, uh, as we live in this fucked up uh, virtual information sphere, learning how to think clearly about analyzing arguments, though, you know, being able to, you know, being actually able to use the 50 uh, known cognitive fallacies, right, and apply them uh, would probably have more yield in terms of happy people and good citizenship than almost anything else I can think of. Yeah, we, I didn't get any instruction on. Um, biases and fallacies until university. And that's, I, mean, like I didn't even get it that you know? long. And um, it seems to me like that's maybe a subset of general um, information skills, right? Because we also, we have media literacy problems. We have, how do you deal with bullshit? How do you find good information sources? How do you do all the sense-making stuff that our communities are always talking about? How do you how do you approach information in a world now where anything can be fake? Yeah, <laughs> in a yeah, world I, of deep fakes, how do you instruct children about how to deal with information? Yeah. And just the simplest thing, you know, I happen to be really good at this. I don't know why. I guess because I've been doing it since before it existed, is knowing how to Google, right? Mm. You know, it'd be well worth a uh, two or three hour arc uh, when people are, say, 10 or 11 on uh, how to Google you know, how to use this amazing tool, uh, but not be misled by it and not go down rabbit holes. And as you say, how to discern uh, what's bullshit and what's not, uh, you know, those right now are, are skills of the highest order, which I don't know of being taught in schools. How do we strike the balance? You know, there's not really an answer to this between the virtual and the embodied, because clearly there's a huge role for online education, but just the same, it gets vastly exaggerated, especially in pandemics and especially in a looming Zuckerberg metaverse. There's going to be a real temptation to export a lot of this into virtual electronic environments. 
Uh, and there's obviously some utility to that, but we're also going to lose a lot of the things that come from embodied interaction if we do too much of that. How do, yeah, we, how do we get the best of both worlds there? Yeah, that's uh, something Zach talks about a fair bit. You know, he's not an anti-technologist, uh, but he talks about the fact that it needs to be put in, the, in a broader context that includes these other elements. Uh, and in fact, uh, done correctly, some of the virtual might actually be able to allow you to have more time for free play. Let's say you can learn math better uh, by doing it when you're cognitively ready and doing the Khan Academy uh, virtual lectures and uh, learn how to do uh, you know, your basic manipulative math three times more effectively uh, than you know, listening to a relatively incompetent uh, uh, second, third, and fourth grade teacher try to teach you this stuff uh, with a bunch of jabbering kids all around you. Uh, if indeed that turns out to be the way to do it, then you should do that, right? But then you should have the macro analysis, okay, of the of the time and efforts we're spending in education. Uh, you know, we've we've suddenly learned that you should teach math a little later, and we should teach it via the Khan Academy, let's say, just as an example. Uh, and that frees up a tremendous amount of time. You know, let's not use that for even more virtual. Let's use that time for the non-virtual, for the embodied, for learning your 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 craft or your or your calling, uh, you know, learning how to play freely and imaginatively, uh, you know, learning how to do uh, dance, you know, learning how to do tricks on your bicycle, right? All the things that are just so rich, and so uh, to the degree we can get uh, efficiency gains and effectiveness gains from technology, uh, let's not make the mistake of uh, then uh, using that as an excuse to have even more virtual and technology. Let's say thanks for the win, and then let's uh, use that time for the things that, are, that make you for a much more balanced human being. I feel like we could talk about this topic for a long time. I'm also aware there's only a limited amount of time anybody's going to pay attention to a given podcast, so we're probably coming to the end. Uh, is there... Uh, First of all, let me say, anybody who's out there listening who is part of the Liminal Web or the Game B community or any of those kinds of things, this is a conversation that seems like it's just getting started, that we need to come to some kind of clarity about the educational principles that would be involved, and we need to really start trying to instantiate some improved educational projects so that we can have those emerge together in tandem with proto-Bs and new civilization attempts. Is there... For you, Jim, uh, have you said everything you wanted to say, or is there anything you've been thinking about education that hasn't come up yet? Uh, I think we covered a lot of it. You know, again, I think I would finish off uh, with, uh, to your point, it's time to actually start trying things uh, non-dogmatically, right? Realizing we're very early and there's been some great thinking, uh, but those of us who have built things know that uh, thinking and design, when they encounter the real world, uh, often uh, you learn things. And so uh, I would say it's time to start doing it and that, but do it with uh, ideas, maybe strongly stated, but loosely held empirically and uh, with the realization that we're all, all, whatever we're doing first is almost certainly not entirely correct and being able to adapt relatively rapidly. Amen. Let's start trying things. Jim Rudd, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> ah, great to be back here with you, Layman, and uh, always an interesting and uh, invigorating conversation.